Hello. It's all wrong. It gets more wrong each time we do this. Every time we do it. Is this how we do it? Is this how we sit? This where the microphone is? Alright, Dan. Move this around a bit. Uh, I made a note. Well, I made two notes. Uh-huh. Not physically. So I'm already lying. Mental notes. Mental notes. Thank okay. you. Two important things to get to, Dan. Okay. One much more important than the other, and we'll get to that last. Uh-huh. But first of all, your queen is dead, Dan. <laughs> I um, thought that was going to be the most important thing. <laughs> yeah, you'd think. Uh, it's an update, actually, and it's a it's very good news. But we'll <laughs> get to that later. Dead. The oh, queen the is dead. Yeah, exactly. The update is the queen is still dead. <laughs> queen, still dead. Uh, I want to bring that up because we're in England, and everybody seems to be talking about it. And as I've been saying, the wheat has been being separated from the chaff, Dan. We're seeing who <laughs> are closet sickos. Means. Oh. We're seeing, you know, who are the people who are upset? Who are the people that are going to London? I got a notification on my phone for some reason that the queue to see the Queen has exceeded three miles. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, they were talking about 30 hours or something. It's disgusting. It's sick. I was thinking thinking about how funny it would be to just be like an American tourist family who like happened to be in like London now. And they're like, oh, let's go down to Buckingham Palace. (laughs) Yeah, we'll go down to Buckingham Palace and see the Queen. And they're like, where's the back of the line? And they're like, oh, it's like East London. Mm. It's like, fuck off. Also, the Queen is at Parliament at the moment, so. Oh, she's in Parliament. Yeah. Huh. That's odd. Yeah, it's one of the one of the one of the 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 tabloid newspapers yesterday had the headline because she she came down from Scotland. This is such a weird way of phrasing it. How do we do it better? <laughs> the coffin was brought down from Scotland. It went to Buckingham Palace last night, mm. and one of the tabloid headlines was like, "Home for the final time." Was like, this is really <laughs> yeah, gross. That's gross. Just point. Uh, well, you know, I we, don't know. We fed a shit queen. It's sycophantic. It is. Is there not part of you though? Because Here's where I stand, Dan. Uh, not having grown up with this stuff, I just, I really don't care. The people who are like, ah, the queen's dead, yes! Like, really don't care. I don't care what these people do. I don't care who lives, I don't care who dies. It's all just very, like, whatever to me. But this guy, you grew up with it. There's gotta be part of it that's like, this is weird. The queen's dead. Or she was I, 96. I, yeah, <laughs> I, think, I think I probably thought it was gonna feel weirder than it actually was. Mm. You're, you're yeah you are right to you are right to gesture at that like it is it is a significant thing but i feel like she's been like disappearing from the limelight for such a long time <laughs> like she hasn't been on the news she hasn't been uh central to mm. british constitutional life yeah. i suppose um and we've been prepared for this i we have yeah why was i not as shocked as i may well mm. have been i don't mm. know yeah I think I was off on a holiday in another world yeah, and you were just doing like, things. I was like, oh. <laughs> and then I came back and like, um, so I went away for a few weeks, mm. sort of like a little bit separated from like uh, normal reality. To do some things up in Balmoral. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I came back from that experience and reality always feels a bit weird anyway. <laughs> oh okay yeah i see what you're saying so yeah. like i just came back to a just a, just <laughs> a country without a queen <laughs> yeah a country without a queen a country with a king i mean god king. save the Ugh. king as a national anthem it's probably gonna take a little while to get used to mm. wow yeah you gotta change the anthem that's yeah. weird that's i know i'm into it why not let's, yeah, let's, okay let's give him a <laughs> Give him a, I'll tell you what I've been thinking, actually. I'll tell you what I've been thinking. I suppose I've been, aside from the fact of like, okay, I'm not going to like celebrate the death of a 96-year-old yeah, sure. woman. Right? Like, maybe when Margaret Thatcher died, mm-hmm. I had some sympathy for like uh, reveling Tramping in the, the streets and whatever. Right. And like, full solidarity with that 
like you see that woman in mm. Glasgow, the chip shop owner that like posted a video on like TikTok or something <laughs> of her like spraying champagne everywhere and celebrating. <laughs> and then a mob descended on, on her chip shop and sprayed ketchup all over. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> Um, this is, this is yeah, and like I have solidarity with her, sure. I suppose, mm. um, but generally, I don't. I, I'm, I'm finding it difficult to generate mm. malice, malice, or yeah. like jubilant yeah. sentiments. Yeah, but I'm also, I also, I also feel like maybe I've sort of imbued some propaganda. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> um, but I also feel like. I don't, I don't feel, like, I feel a bit disgusted, I suppose, by the idea of a hereditary monarchy. Sure. And <laughs> you and I are much more substantively disgusted, I think, by the continued existence of the aristocracy mm. and the sort of, like, regime of property ownership in this country and mm. blah, 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 whatever. Mm. That's, I think that's more offensive just to general sure. existence of the aristocracy as opposed to the existence yeah. of a hereditary monarchy, top. whatever. Yeah. Uh, but it is, a, it is a ceremonial function that she fulfills. If there was a, if there's a point of like, if there was a, well, I suppose if there was an aspect of the constitution I was going to want to challenge, it's probably less that so much as like an unelected house of lords yeah. or... Any number of other aspects of the constitution or the electoral system or the arrangement of any, any so many other things. Yeah. So, so there's a kind of like, yeah, an instinctive opposition to republicanism, to monarchism, <laughs> and a sort of like intuition toward republicanism. But I guess so many of the the arguments that I see I'm seeing presented for uh, rep republicanism at the moment are kind of like feel a bit inherently liberal in the yeah. sort of yeah, like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Thrust of yeah. the argument and I'm just not I'm not motivated by it yeah. particularly. Yeah. I I suppose there is a question of like I've I've heard the question raised of what does this mean for like British self conception? Um <laughs> how have we been like living in this perpetual like I mean, Britain has been a declining empire and this woman has overseen the decline of this empire mm. in a supposedly like I guess in a way which maintains some amount of continuity such that certain aspects or certain parts of the British psyche and mm. some people of, in this country can sort of maintain some kind of semblance of, oh, Great Britain and its importance in the world and blah, 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 blah. What is that going to, what is this going to mean now that she's died? Now that we have to reckon with Charles III? Ah. <laughs> now we have to actually meet some of these other characters in the royal family and sort of like try to imagine them in this role and try mm. and conceptualise contemporary Britain, a collective we here kind of thing. How is, how, how, are, how is this country going to cope? <laughs> how will that? it cope? Indeed. Hopefully not well. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully we get some dissonance. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I just simply don't care. Uh -huh. um, she's been dead for years anyway. She's been dead for years, <laughs> as we always say. Um, yeah, Queen's dead. What are you going to do? I, I wonder if they like pull aside new monarchs and they're like, what archetype do you wish to fulfill in like, your public facing function? Because like Queen Elizabeth was very much like, I don't think I ever saw her display any like emotion. And I don't mean that as like a dig. It's just like, I only ever saw her, and this might just be because I'm not from here, but like, 
speak, giving speeches and just being like, uh, here is this and just performing official functions and that it, that's it. Like never really saw her do anything. So she's very much like blank canvas for all of these sickos to be like, she was so great. And it's like, what, why? <laughs> she might've been, I don't know. She might've been a really nice lady. She spawned some good pedophiles. That's her lasting legacy, I guess. I have no idea. But allegedly. Like, allegedly spawned alleged pedophiles. Um, yeah, but I don't know. I just, it's, who cares? It's like, anyway, the new guy, I'd like to see some, uh, I don't know, Charles II, when he came in, he was like, I'm going to be the party guy. We're getting the monarchy back going. I'd like to see another party guy. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> he's not, he doesn't, he's not coming across too well so far. It seems like he's coming across like a bit of a prick. I'll be honest, uh, right now, because like, as he was signing the papers, he like shooed his butler away and <laughs> snarled at him. And it's like, Ooh, not a good start, <laughs> but maybe that's his archetype prick. Um, we could use a prick, King. <laughs> Whatever. Second news, Dan, the much more important news. Uh, the listener will remember a while ago, Dan and I had a fellow named Bobby on from the excellent podcast Tipping Pitches to discuss minor league unionization in Major League Baseball. It has happened, Dan. There is now a minor league union, which is insane. And the insane part about it is that they're basically joining um, the MLBPA, which is crazy because like minor league players go listen to our episode, have had to put up with a lot of really bad shit, sometimes making like less than 10 grand a year, sleeping on floors with like five guys, not getting good food, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they're part of the MLBPA right now, which is really, really cool. The MLBPA also just signed up with the AFL-CIO, which is crazy. I don't really <laughs> understand what that means, but that seems nuts. And um, Major League Baseball, Dan, uh, voluntarily recognized them, which seems crazy. No one was expecting them to do that. But the commissioner, Rob Manfred, I think was bought on specifically because he used to be a labor lawyer. So I think the thinking is, is that he kind of was like, listen, guys, if we voluntarily recognize them now, we can kind of like get them somewhere down the line instead of trying to fight the inevitable. So we'll see what comes of that. Um, it is really good news. Hopefully we'll see some like improvements in living conditions and pay for those guys. But yeah, just thought to bring that up because the name of that episode was Unionize the Minor Leagues and that's happened. So cool. We did it. <laughs> we did it. We did it, folks. Um, good stuff. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. No, congratulations to all involved, I suppose. Yeah. And it was, it was funny because they like balloted because there's like this long process for like starting a union and they balloted people and it was everybody was like, yes. <laughs> I was like, okay, cool. Look at that. The summer of discontent goes on and on. There are some train strikes that potential train strikes that we could talk about, I guess. There are some train strikes in Australia, but... Um, I don't know. That would be a whole nother can of worms to open up. Uh, let's just keep saying things continue to heat up in this world of ours, Dan. And speaking of a heating up world, <laughs> climate no. change, ecology, we're back. Wow. We, we put it off as long as we can, Dan. We got to talk about <laughs> the second part of this book. Um, so we're back, listener. We're reading um, Jason W. Moore's Capitalism in the Web of Life. We did not finish it this time. We read part two, Historical Capitalism historical nature. Um, we started with the introduction in part one about four weeks ago, something like that, two episodes ago, I think, something like that. So go back and listen to that one. But um, yeah, we're back. And um, I dug it. It was really good. Um, we were just saying right before we started recording that this could be a bit frustrating to read this book. But if you can kind of get through some of the repetition it and kind of, I wouldn't exactly say it's complicated. It's just like, pretty dense, I suppose. Um, you, you'll really be rewarded with some really exciting ideas that I kind of find at least pretty refreshing, especially when we talk about Marxist ecology. So before we kind of get into it, I suppose, what did, yeah, what did you make of this uh, second part? Yeah, it was, it was enjoyable to read. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think I agree with you. I, we did a lot of speculating last time on 
what we think his theory of crisis might be. Yeah. I mean, the first three chapters of this kind of touched on it. Um, and this subsequent three chapters, this part two, is largely around the idea of um, concept, well, introducing, conceptualizing an idea of capitalist crisis, which contains within it the implications of capitalism's relationship to ecology mm. and uh, what he introduces, the, the double internality um, in, the, in the first three chapters. So not the, not the separateness of nature and capitalism, but rather their dialectical interconnectedness. Um, and we are introduced to multiple new dialectics <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, in these three chapters. Which I'm not sure we're gonna <laughs> make head the tails of, but the old college tried. Yes, yeah. indeed, the old college tried. <laughs> yes, please give us some some <laughs> leniency. This is very much us learning along with the listener who won't have read this, <laughs> which will make them even more confused. But hey, you know we'll give it a go. Um, so yeah, you're right. The first episode, we might want to go back a bit and just say that like you're right. The first episode was definitely concerned with the idea that like. A lot of past and present thinking about capitalism has been framed by this, as you're saying, like this kind of dualism, this idea that like it's all framed by separating um, capitalism out of nature, even labor out of nature, and basically saying it's like capitalism acting upon nature or on the other end, you know, this is all just like nature acting on capitalism, man, like where's the agency? And of course, more like comes, as you say, like with his double internality, the oikios, he comes up with this whole new theoretical framework to basically say that we're all in this web of life, man, and um, it's capitalism acting on nature, but it's also nature. Well, no, it's capitalism acting through nature, I suppose is what he would say, but it's also nature acting through capitalism. It's all very dialectical. So anyway, this episode and this part, he goes in quite a bit more to talk about like reapproaching the historical dynamics of capitalism, I suppose, and all of its contradictions by like using this holistic thinking. Um, and he talks, as you say, about like these crises. He talks about crises of underproduction and overproduction and how capitalism and nature kind of like interconnect with each other. And I didn't realize, I, do you know if he coined the phrase for every um, Manchester or Mississippi? I think he did because I've heard it before and he doesn't put it, he doesn't like cite anything here. He doesn't put it in quotes or whatever. So I think he came up with that. So he gets into that idea quite a bit as well, um, which we'll go into. But um, yeah, I, I found it really exciting and fresh and um, quite convincing. There's there's one thing that I think we can get to that I'm a little bit kind of unsure about, about like this emphasis, but um, yeah. yeah, it's quite good. Mm. Yeah, I wonder whether a good starting point for us might be how he fits this, his notions of the relationship between capitalism and ecology into the kind of history of capitalism. Mm. We sort of hinted last time that he takes quite an early starting point for capitalism. And I, it's, later on in this book, he's going to go into much more detail about it. So uh, we might not get into it right now, but he sort of talks about like a, um, a long 16th century or something as the sort of like origin point of capitalism because so much of what he recognizes to be the dynamic, dynamics of capitalism are present there. But he sees capitalism and its history as a series of quite protracted waves mm. um, of growth and decline and then new growth again. He identifies like five or six as that uh, come from this long 16th century onwards kind of thing, which he ties into 
um, the relationship between capitalism and nature and capitalism's ability to exploit the the cheap, the free and mm. cheap gifts of nature, whether they're in the form of uh, work done by nature or energy contributed by nature kind of thing. Because if we recall last time, um, one of the things that he talks about, which an idea that I'd never really come across before, was this idea that although capitalism, like um, in a Marxist sense, like values things predicated on the work done by the labor internal to the sort of like mm. money, commodity, money circuit of capitalism, right? Um, that's how the determination of how, what things are worth is done by capitalism, whether it knows it or not, uh, in Marx's and then in Moore's reinterpretation of Marx. But Moore is suggesting that far more significant in a sort of quantitative sense of the the inputs to capitalism, far more important is these things which are almost external from it. What he talks about as being like uh, nature's pro no capitalism's process of um, appropriating from nature kind of thing. Mm. And he describes a sort of cyclical process of like a crisis, boom and crisis and boom and crisis kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, series of like, yeah, accumulation cycles and um, things like that. And about when you have these accumulation crises and underproduction crises, overproduction crises, about the thing that saves it is re reorganizing. And he, he kind of talks about how he borrows a lot of this from Origi and I guess a bit from Harvey. I didn't really understand that bit. But, um, but about how it's able to find these new frontiers of things that it's able to capitalism is able to appropriate. And it gets into what he said in the beginning, which I found very moving. He quotes somebody as saying, the only thing worse than being exploited is being appropriated. And that's to basically say, you know, uh, if you exploit labor, that's wage labor. That's what we have now. But if you appropriate labor, that's slavery, right? And so he, he draws this out and it, it is very inspired by like feminist critiques and stuff like eco-feminism, radical feminism and stuff like that to talk about the four cheaps and we went over this last episode, but I think that this is kind of getting into maybe like some stuff where I'm like, eh, like a little bit kind of unsure of. This is the one thing. Because he talks about how like capitalism relies on appropriation and specifically it needs these four cheaps, which we talked about last episode. Cheap food, cheap energy, cheap labor, and cheap raw materials, right? And he says that that's kind of like the base of the base, right? So like you have the base and superstructure, which is like, you know, obviously like the economic base, the social base that determines like the political structure, cultural structure, things like that. But then like beneath that, for any of this to even happen, you have to have like cheap natures and you have to have like the oikios operating in such a way that it's able to appropriate at things, you know, appropriating them like not at their fair price or whatever, you know, whatever. But I think that like maybe in him doing that, I wanted to ask you this. Do you think that him privileging like the appropriation of like unpaid work and energy, like, do you think he does that maybe a bit too much? Because like, I don't know, what, what I'm thinking is that the oikios or whatever isn't unique to capitalism in any way. There is like a way of interacting with nature that all modes of productions have had, right? And so when you talk about like the base of the base as being like being able to appropriate freely from nature, that's really the base of capitalism. I, I don't know. I'm a little bit unsure about that because it's like, well, the thing that's making this oikios like so bad or whatever, that's making us appropriate so much and at such an unsustainable rate is the base from base and superstructure, right? Like it is the mode of production. It is like this economic way. It is wage labor. It's the value form, the commodity or whatever. So like I'm a bit, when he says that, that like, here's the thing we really need to be focusing on, man, is like the nature and the cheap things here. I'm a little bit like, well, kind of. 
But it's like you would still have an oikios or whatever in socialism. There would still be a way of interacting with nature. But the thing that determines how sustainable or whatever that that's going to be is maybe like your economic mode of organization or at least like, yeah, I don't know. Hopefully that made sense. Yeah, I think it did. I, I, I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> I think he definitely... It's not, it's not as though he is um, overlooking fundamental critiques of capitalism. Sure. He's certainly pointing the blame at capitalism's requirement to seek greater and greater profits kind of thing. And also, he definitely defines the internal workings of capitalism in a way what, what one would recognize from, from Marx, I suppose. Sure. As I say, he recognizes like the law of value. But he then sort of amends it in some particular mm. ways, which, um, yeah, he does amend the law of value such that it's largely about um, the ability to exploit cheap natures in mm. some ways. If, even if it's still, in principle, a law which is about the requirement to expand values. And he is constantly talking about like things that we would think of as core to the process of capitalism, whether it's like revolutionizing the productive process, whether it's uh, making labor more efficient in some mm. ways. But then all he's saying is all of these uh, dynamics that we recognize as being potentially internal to capitalism require these processes of the appropriation from nature of sort of like cheap, yeah. cheap natures. Uh, so maybe he talks a lot about like uh, sort of like cheap when going back to that, like for every Manchester, there's a, there's a Mississippi. Word, Mississippi, did you say? Like it's only because of, say, cheap steel that allows for the the laying of a sufficient quantity of uh, rail track in America to sort mm. of like facilitate the transportation of cotton from this frontier to the sort of core of capitalism kind of thing, or it's only because of the relationship between the expanding sort of agricultural output of North America, which he seems to fixate on quite a lot. He seems mm. to talk quite a lot about like the sort of like frontier agrarian family in America, which is sort of gradually being drawn into the process, cap sort of the capitalist process, but in a way which has it also somewhat on the outside kind of thing. So he so he talks a lot about like core dynamics of capitalism, but their sort of like relationship to the periphery yeah. kind of thing. It's very much like a core periphery argument. Mm. He says, I don't know whether I don't know whether that clarifies anything for you. Well, I think um, so. I think definitely. I I suppose it's just he like real. I think maybe he's just bending the stick. I hate it when people say sure. that, but I think he is a bit because he is like, no, okay, nobody's focusing on my oikios or whatever. Like, <laughs> and that's totally true. Like, no. <laughs> Even, I think, versions of socialism or communism or whatever that we've been quite taken with don't focus on this nearly enough. Like, even, like, labor time planning doesn't take into account what that could potentially do to the environment. And so he is definitely right to be like, hey, everybody, we need to focus on this. And, like, now, because we're running out of these cheap natures, he's going to get to, like, his final crisis thing, I think, later in this book. But, um, yeah, I, mean, I think that's just what I felt. I think it just felt like he was maybe just bending the stick a bit too much because it's like, well, the thing that's going to determine how we interact with nature, not to be like a dualist or whatever, like is how we organize ourselves and getting rid of the value form, right? So mm -hmm. yeah, whatever. One of the things that I found really interesting in this sections were when he was talking about the distinction between like nature, capital N nature, mm. and what he was describing as historical nature. 
Mm. Um, and I think in some respects, like every mode of production there is a, or every human being's interaction with nature is a, is, is a historical nature in some respects. Like it's a created nature. But then he talks quite a lot about capitalism's relationship to historical nature as opposed to nature in general, because nature in general versus capitalism or society in general would be kind of like a dualist argument. Mm. Whereas in his effort to sort of like create a dialectic between the two, what he seems to put as that sort of like synthesis point is this idea of historical nature. Mm. And then that seems to imply that capitalism creates nature in some way. And this is coming back sure. to this. Capitalism creates nature in the same way that nature creates capitalism in some respects. Mm. Um, but capitalism both creates nature, but then continually recreates nature almost. Yeah. Every time there is the end of a boom and the beginning of a, a bust cycle, a beginning of a new mm. phase of capitalist production, I suppose, every time capitalism discovers a new piece of free or cheap nature which it's ready to appropriate, it is through various technological or uh, class relational so I guess transformations of its operation. It sort of it is creating a new type of nature by creating a new version of itself. And I guess in the same mm. in the same similar respects, a new type of capitalism is created by the necessity of interacting with a new type of nature in yeah. some respects. Yeah, and crucially too, I think that when his argument is about crisis is like when capitalism creates these new natures, it does it in a way that just completely shoots itself in the foot. We'll get into, this is a bit more complicated, we'll get into it in a bit, but it's basically just to think about, say, going in and leveling a rainforest so that you can plant a bunch of palm trees to make palm oil, right? Like, if that's the way it works, I don't know, coffee, beans, or whatever, whatever the fuck, you know what I mean? Um, that's, those are, that's actually going to act as a hindrance on accumulation, because it's like, okay, in the short run, you're getting rid of this rainforest, whatever, replace it with something that can be much more profitable, but it's like... You know, the argument for this specific one about the rainforest is that, like, what happens when we run out of rainforest? You're not going to be able to accumulate because the world will end, Dan. But also, like, there are things that are much more specific about, like, farming, right? Like, this is probably a much better example because it's, like, once you – you can only appropriate for natures for so long before you have to start capitalizing them and start treating them as, like, commodities. And one of the ways in which this uh, is very apparent is in capitalist really intensive agriculture. It's, like – um, farming up until like World War II in America was much more sustainable because it didn't have to be like this massive capitalized thing. You could just appropriate all of the little mycelium networks and all of the microbes in, the, in this like perfect soil in the Midwest, right? But now we've gotten to a point where you've appropriated all of that cheap energy that's in the soil. Basically, you've gone past, way past peak appropriation and now everything has to be capitalized. So you're forced to kind of like trade in these things as commodities. And what that means is, like, for farmland is that you have to put in more and more um, artificial fertilizers and things like that, which is a huge hindrance on accumulation because, like, you need to put in more and more and more and more each season and you're, you know, everything's just dead. It's just basically sand at this point, dirt, and you're only able to grow stuff because of the, like, massively energy-intensive inputs that you put in. And that's why farming is basically, like, subsidized out the bloody wazoo, Dan. Um... But yeah, this gets into a core bit of his argument, which is like, you can only appropriate for so long because of these fundamental laws of capitalism and competition where, um, yeah, the market just basically runs its course. Um, I think if I tried to explain that in like value theory terms, I'd kind of slip up. Just take my word on it. <laughs> 
Yeah, there's a really interesting aspect of this argument which I found really fascinating. He says something about capitalization and appropriation. He says that capitalism's main problem is not that it hasn't got enough capitalization. It's actually got too much. Yeah. Exactly. At a certain yeah. point in time, too many things have been brought into the kind of like um he sort of he he makes capitalize capitalization synonymous with the sort of like money commodity money circuit that we recognize from volume one of capital mm. and so the more that things are brought into that sort of circuit of capitalism the less they are representative of external natures and the more they are representative of what you were described of like okay here is now something which we have to be responsible for the inputs for we have to be responsible for attempting to I guess recreate the fertility of nature if we're thinking mm. of the soil and we've got it we become responsible for fertilizing the soil but it becomes more energy intensive over time it takes this greater there's more diminishing returns i suppose mm. um and i guess the same is true of like like mining for example or logging yeah, fracking fracking yeah. like at a certain point in time you can't go from like sort of tapping oil oil wells everywhere and just sort of getting it up really easily. You're mm. going to have to put more labor, more technology, more fixed capital into the process, into a process which is um, more and more difficult to do. You've got to do like deep sea uh, mm. oil drilling, which results, he makes the point of like, the result of this is like the deep water horizon yeah. catastrophe or whatever. Or you've got to do tar sands, or you've got to do fracking, mm. or you've got to do like, like chopping the top off mountains to get yeah. the the... The, the raw materials underneath kind of thing. And this is an example of like one of his four cheaps, i.e. the mm. kind of like the, what do they call them? Raw materials? Raw materials, yeah. Um, energy, yeah. Yeah, and energy as well in this instance, like cease to be cheap anymore, become mm. more and more uh, labor intensive, more and more capitalized, more and more caught up in the sort of circulation of capital um, and therefore less, uh, they contribute to uh, a decline in the profitability of capitalism over time. Yeah, totally. And I find that an incredibly um, compelling argument. I mean, it's just right, right? It's like, this is where his focus saying like, okay, let's just, just for a little bit, I know that this is heresy, but let's take a step away from like labor and value production to kind of look at the things and exploitation and look at the things that are being appropriated. Because his argument is that those things are just as important to capitalism as actually exploiting the laborer. And, you know, you see examples of this, like, obviously, we think about, like, you know, the boom of industrialism in 18th or 19th century England, you know, the cotton mills and everything. It's like that was only able to happen because of mass produced cotton made by slaves, right, who are just completely appropriated people. Disgusting. But you see it now as well, right? When we bought this, ep this uh, example up last episode about... Um, you know, for every Manchester, there's a Mississippi. For every Silicon Valley, like you said, there's a Democratic Republic of the Congo where it is basically slave labor to get the cobalt and all of these things from mines to make our all of our little iPads and our things that record our podcasts and things like that, right? So it's, it's, inc it's incredibly um, compelling. And as you said, like this idea of historical natures, we've come across this idea of Marx's spat with Malthus like a couple of times before. But this was his big, uh, Malthus, I mean, his big... Um, mistake was thinking that um, limits to growth aren't historically determined. He was just like, too many poor people, we're all fucked, we're all gonna die, whatever. And Marx was like, well, no, duh, because steam engine, cotton gin, like, you know what I mean? So um, yeah, limits to growth as being historically determined, I found really interesting. 
And that would get into a bigger conversation about what growth would be under socialism and stuff like that. But um, maybe we can just table that for right now. Um, should we take a stab then at the like kind of general theory of underproduction that comes up? Because he is like, he does talk about overaccumulation and well, overproduction. A theory of like overaccumulation is very simple kind of. It's just like, we're seeing this now, it's just like too much wealth or whatever has been transferred to like the capitalists. Now nobody in the working class has money to buy the things the capitalists are making. Everybody's kind of fucked, right? That's relatively simple. But um, I think if we want to talk about the theory of underproduction, which is very similar to this, but um, yeah, I think we probably should. And it's going to, I think it, for the listener, I think it's going to, if you haven't come across this idea before, it's going to seem a little bit complicated, but I think that that's only because there are... Um, just some new vocabulary terms, maybe, that, like, if you haven't come across before, you're going to be like, what the fuck? But I promise it is all very simple. To kind of really quickly go through it, it's this idea that there are two types of capital that the capitalist has to invest if they're, like, running a factory or something like that to produce. You have variable capital and constant capital. Variable capital is so-called because it's basically just labor, and that's the only thing that you can vary to get how much you can get, like, more value out of, right? It's the only thing that you can get more value out of. Constant capital is so-called because it just has the value that it has. And this is, as opposed to labor, this is like the machines, the buildings, the raw material inputs. And here, Moore is really putting the emphasis on a specific part of constant capital, which is circulating capital, which is the raw material inputs. Fixed capital is the other part of constant capital. And again, this is just, you don't need to know all of these words, but it's basically just the machines and the buildings and everything like that. Whereas circulating capital is the raw materials. The theory of underproduction then goes that because of competition, the fixed capital, the machines, the buildings, things like that, the capitalist has to invest some of their profit into that to basically up labor productivity, right? But that comes at the cost of raw materials and circulating capital. So all the theory is is just that fixed capital grows at a much higher rate than circulating capital. Um, basically just leading to, this would also get into the tangential form of the rate of profit, which we don't need to get into, but basically here leading to an underproduction of material inputs. Um, and what he's saying here is that those material inputs are vitally important because those are the things that are appropriated really easily. And once you run out of those, once you underproduce on those enough, then you're kind of fucked and you have to find a new organizational form, kind of. You have to find a new frontier. And he hasn't gotten to this yet, but I get the feeling, Dan, He's going to say that we're out of frontiers. <laughs> that, I mean, that uh, yeah, I, I spent all of these reading these three chapters waiting to see whether we were going to get to the point <laughs> where is this a secular or is this a cyclical crisis? Mm. And at the end of the the of chapter six, he does sort of suggest that we've reached sort of not not necessarily a final crisis, but there mm. is a diminishing return every time capitalism has to recreate nature for itself, create a new form of historical nature the sort of material that it has to tap into is less forthcoming, I guess, or less generous in what it has mm -hmm. for capitalism to work with. But at the same time, I think it's probably worth reiterating that he's kind of, when it comes back to this avoidance of a dualistic relationship between society or capitalism and nature, um, he does also seem to be pointing toward the possibility of capitalism always reconfiguring itself, mm. or at least he makes the argument that in a lot of ways, capitalism doesn't tap into nature. It's not like nature is out there and capitalism <laughs> sort of like 
puts some kind of like horrible tendril into it and starts to sap its its uh, vital vitality or whatever. I don't know where I'm going with this. It's pretty gross. Um, but rather the the specific type of nature which capitalism is exploiting is a type of nature which is created by the particular dynamics of any phase of capitalism kind of thing capitalism almost creates its own constraints in some ways so it creates the possibility for a boom but then also by virtue of the dynamics that it puts in place by virtue of the type of historical nature that it creates um through the kind of like intermediate intermediate durée of the sort of like 70 year cycle or whatever um the rules that it puts in place that allow it to uh, find a new vitality are which then are, are what then comes to fetter it through the the process as the logic of any particular historical sure. nature run uh, plays itself out i suppose so although there are serious hints of a uh, final crisis of mm. a secular decline. I think it's definitely worth remembering that element of his argument, and that's the one that he might want to ensure that we all take away: is mm. that just because perhaps there is some kind of like secular de decline going on, that is those failings of capitalism are a result of capitalism itself, kind of thing. Capitalism is the fetter. Capitalism is mm. the crisis. Uh, not a, it's not nature's fault, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, the diminishing returns are not, and it's not, but, but it's it's not nature's fault because it's not willing to give more. Nor is it capitalism's fault because it's like um, reaping so vociferously. Mm. But um, the rules of the relationship that capitalism has created with nature are fettering in and of themselves kind of thing. And he doesn't really get into it this time, but I feel like in the first three chapters there were hints of this argument, and we did talk about it, of kind of like a different social relationship would have a different relationship to nature, which might sure. not be destructive in the same way. Kind One of thing. would help. One would hope. <laughs> I, I think you're absolutely right to bring that up. And I think, yeah, I've definitely been reading this. I got carried away and I was like, final crisis, dude, it's coming. Because he hints at it a little bit, but you're absolutely right to bring that back up. It is totally, it is definitely relational. Because I've been thinking very much in this about the four cheaps. What are the ones that he could hint at later in the book that are being exhausted? Because there is a, like, you know, it is relational and everything, but there is, like, a quantitative amount of, like, obviously fossil fuels. We'd want to get past that. But also, like, things like uranium. Like, all energy inputs save, like, I guess, like, solar. But then how do you harvest solar? You need, like, all of these different materials, et cetera, et cetera. Tidal power, Dan. That's the solution to nothing. <laughs> but, um... Then I was thinking about like, well, maybe it could be food. But then it's like one could very much imagine capitalism creating a new historical nature where people, this is over the top, but like instead of eating meat because it wastes everything, people just eat crickets. You know what I mean? And like we get our protein from that. So yeah, maybe there's just more doom to go. Maybe I was like, oh, cool. All the doom is almost done. One final doom. But then I guess you have to get into the problem of like catastrophic climate change. <laughs> but um, I don't know. This is a question I wrestle with a lot of how how ecologically speaking how bad could things get before capitalism can't operate anymore um and i've always been tempted to say that there is an absolute limit but maybe there isn't maybe there it can just keep revolutionizing itself in 
increasingly worse and worse, more and more grim ways. He does say, though, that there is, we hit peak appropriation. And I was like, oh, when did we hit peak appropriation in the 80s? And he's like, 1870. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. So I don't know. I guess this is a question for like, when we finish the book, because he'll hopefully get to it. But um, I wonder. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's funny, actually. I was doing a similar process of like, what, if we take these cheaps, how can I, can I think of any ways in which capitalism could mm. uh, revivify some of these cheaps or make cheap again some of these essential <laughs> things? Um, and I was thinking about food as well, only because like, um, if I'd... George Monbiot has been going and wrote a book recently about food and it's been going mm. on quite a lot about food and sort of like growing protein in some kind of like fermentation process <laughs> we're we just all, all end up eating like the dead husks of some kind of bacteria or whatever mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's not it's not it's not it's not exciting it's it's mm. the stuff of like dystopia yeah. I suppose in some respects maybe it's maybe it's not maybe it's not um but perhaps it does represent some kind of like new technological fix that will discover some type of nature yet to be exploited. Mm -hmm. And it does present an interesting thought experiment or an interesting version of this argument because one call could fall into the trap of being like, we need to discover some new vein of some kind of <laughs> ore or we need to discover some new continent on Earth to go mm -hmm. off and exploit kind of thing. And those are the frontiers that have yielded the greatest... Uh, impact on the development of capitalism, you know. But we could think of it in terms of like some kind of new capitalist technology giving us access to some kind of frontier, I suppose. I mean, maybe they ought to just like hurry up with the, the <laughs> asteroid mining and they should hurry up maybe that'll that. represent it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, maybe that needs to frame our thinking about, at least about socialism, not necessarily about capitalism, but about like how is it that we can just get past appropriation, period? Because if we ever want to have a, like, completely 100%, and this is, like, way in the future, even way beyond, like, the revolution or whatever, right? Like, how is it that we can actually get past appropriation once and for all and, like, live in perfect harmony on the cover of a Marie Bookchin book? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, how how is it that, like, we can basically balance this relation, which is the same thing or whatever, it's the web of life, but, like, you know, realistically speaking, how is it that we can stop appropriating natures and all have food forests? Like, is that the solution? Because obviously he talks about the division between town and country as being like a huge antagonism in this relationship or maybe like uh, something symptomatic of it. Um, and you would need to get rid of that. But it's, it seems like a tall order. And, it, you know, as like taken as I was with the fundamental principle stuff, it's like, would simply getting rid of the value form and producing for utility democratically solve this question? Maybe. It would be a lot better than what we have now, but um, also maybe not, you know? So it's, it's more complicated, I guess, than simply just producing for utility, although let's go for that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, my first instinct is to say, yes, we just need to get rid of that fundamental tenet of capitalism which mm. says we need to expand values kind of thing. And once we, as you say, like overthrow the law of value. We'll... It's an easy first step. Yeah. <laughs> but what, yeah, quite what the relationship to historical nature will be mm. under the early phase of a transition to socialism. Mm. I suppose it's something, it's like, it's something to do with subsumption, right? It's like real subsumption, formal subsumption. It's like, you know, first of all, we like get rid of that. 
and then second, and we use what we have, and then we start to, you know, we use what we have in a better way, meaning like technologies and factories and things like that, and then eventually we create something new, I suppose. It's not just going to happen like, boom, you live on a, you know, farm or whatever. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, what else is there to get to here, Dan? I mean, I guess one thing that I thought was interesting, we can kind of go back a bit, is how he talks about... Um, capitalizations like priorities of these kind of like appropriations or whatever. He says, I'm just going to quote him here. He says, capitalization has two priorities. One is to squeeze more work and energy out of older appropriated zones, as in post-war American agriculture. Another is to render more efficient the industrial processing of cheap natures appropriated elsewhere, as in the successive industrial revolutions. So that's actually also kind of like a type of real informal subsumption, right? Like, as I said kind of earlier, like, American agriculture pre-World War II was, like, very different. Um, I'm not saying it was, like, perfect or anything, but it was able to, like, use the nutrients and the microbial networks and stuff like that in the soil to basically, like, produce in a much better way. Uh, but now, capital it's, like, capitalized these things. It's no longer really, like, appropriating them, which is worse for everybody, including the capitalists, but they have literally, like, no choice but to do this. So, um, yeah, that's very compelling. Very disturbing, but very compelling. It's also, I always, like, every now and then, I kind of just want to be like, you know, where is the relationship between, like, a concrete individual capitalist and all of this value trading? Like, do they understand what they're doing? Do they understand that it's all value? And what they're doing is kind of, like, contradictory, or are they just in it to get it? I kind of just wish they knew what they were doing. <laughs> I don't think they do. I don't think they have any idea. But, like, oh, man. Yeah. If only. If, if only. only. If only I could just go to the capitalists and be like, solve this for me. Well, I mean, even if they knew what they were doing, they still wouldn't be able to overcome the contradiction. Of yeah, it, exactly. Right? So, yeah. What you're hoping for is their conversion to socialism. Yeah, exactly. Which, which, um, which has not been unheard of mm. for members of the bourgeoisie to come that's over true. to the side of the proletariat. So, yeah, that's very true. Who knows? Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things I was thinking about earlier on and meant to say was... Um, in this relationship with this idea of like, is there a final crisis coming? Is there a, a final crisis in the relationship between nature and capitalism? Mm. Uh, is capitalism depleted of all its, of uh, all of the free inputs kind of thing? And in some ways it's hard to imagine anything like what has happened before happening again kind of thing. There isn't, as I say, a new continent to be discovered kind of mm. thing. There aren't, um, there aren't, uh, agricultural workers existing on the periphery of capitalism who are willing to trade with the core but maintain some kind of different social relation at the same time such that they continue to be external and non-capitalized kind of thing there aren't a billion chinese workers ready to yeah, exactly transition from being peasants external to the capitalist social relation to uh one's central and core to it kind of thing so it certainly does feel like there aren't new frontiers yeah it's funny because when I said, like, he said peak appropriation was 1870 or whatever around then, I was a little bit like, damn, that was a long time ago. But in the grand scheme of things, it very much wasn't. And all of those examples that you're using, it's, like, astonishing how quickly capitalism uses up cheap natures. And, like, cheap labor in terms of, like, as you're saying, like, this, like, unheard of amount of people, well-educated peasants who are just, like, immediately able to jump into the labor force and just up productivity in China, like you know, a lot, like that was very recently in the grand scheme of things. And it's like, oh, it's all going downhill. You know what I mean? It's yeah. insane. Yeah. 
one of the one of the examples he uses is one that we've come across before, which is the. Um, I mean, he's got to talk about it very much more in this book later on. Is the conquest of South America, I think, mm. um, and he talks quite a lot about uh, mining in South America. And what he actually says was there was a, a very rapid boom and then actually quite a quick bust only in 30 or 40 years in, in terms of the output from South America and what could be appropriated mm. by Europe kind of thing. Um, and I think this was the phase of uh, strict appropriation kind of thing. Yeah. And then it's then it sort of transitions into the process of being capitalized and then you get Potosi and then you get the use of mercury and the mm. refining of uh, silver, then you get more deliberate and intentional enslaving of the population. And this is this gradual process of being drawn into capitalization kind of thing. Mm. But I guess this is coming back to what I was saying earlier about his identifying capitalism as starting very early on, because there's a period of, there's, this, there's a section in this book when he's talking about like the centers of world mining in um, like the, 14th, 1400s or something mm. as being in like Eastern and Central Europe or whatever. Um, and that being a free input from nature, which is ex sort of like outdone at a certain point and results in a, a crisis. And he starts this cycle of uh, appropriation and crisis very early on in what we will conceptualize as history. So when he says that the point of peak appropriation was 1870 or whatever, mm -hmm. It's quite late in terms of the history that he is presenting, True. one which starts in the mid-1400s or yeah. something. It's interesting also, like, we, you can kind of finally see here where he's getting his Wallerstein influence from. Um, and comparing this to, like, the Brennerite thesis of the origins of capitalism, it almost seems like it's asking two different questions. They think they're asking the same question about, like, where did capitalism come from, man? But, like, yeah, I don't know. They're very much concerned with the, like, qualitative change in labor relations, the Brennerites, I mean, Whereas, like, he's very much concerned with, like, what's being appropriated? Let's look around what's being appropriated. And that's a bit of a slippery slope, I think, because, like, uh, what was our reading that we did where we came across the appropriation that happened in England, like, specifically in, it, like, leading up to the 1200s that uh, specifically of, like, this class conflict between, like, peasants and lords looking to, like, appropriate new natures for themselves and they kind of, like, cut down all forests. What was that? The Perry was Anderson, was it? Yeah, yeah, I think it was the Perry Anderson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's, like, an example of non-capitalist, I would say, maybe. Oh, I don't know. Do I want to say that? But, like, non-capitalist appropriation of natures, where, like, this was not necessarily a capitalist relationship between peasant and lord, right? Like, obviously. But as these people, like, you know, there was this antagonism that led them to, like, appropriate nature more. So I suppose if you're only looking for when we appropriated stuff on a large scale... I don't know if that's the best measurement for when capitalism began, but maybe that's not what he's saying. Yeah. I don't know. I wonder whether the two things can be synthesized in some way, mm. because I think of the Brennerite argument as being, where did the logic come from? Mm. And it's possible that there was this sort of like shift in the logic of the the relationship between classes such that a new class relationship appeared in England in whatever day, mm. 15 something or 14 something or whatever. Mm -hmm. 15 something and that can co coincide with a process of what Ellen Minx's Wood might identify as being like feudal colonialism in South America interacting with the sort of early nascent stages of a new capitalist logic and then how did that new capitalist logic feed back into this process of appropriation or can you even have a feudal process of 
um, appropriation of uh, resources from South America that then mm. feeds into the development of capitalism in Western Europe, say, even though the direct beneficiaries of that process, the sort of like Spanish aristocracy kind of thing, as we identified when we did whatever mm. reading it was we did on Eduardo that topic. Galliano. When we read the Eduardo mm. Galliano. <laughs> and he's very much like, mm. these stupid Spanish aristocrats <laughs> didn't uh, like invest any of this stuff. They just spent it on palaces and whatever. Yeah. No, but to be fair, I think that like all of these things need to be synthesized and you need to take out the bad bits. Like, but primitive accumulation was hugely important. Like, obviously, the Brennerite stuff is much more qualitative. The like Galeanite, I guess, I don't know, just theory of capitalism came from primitive accumulation is very quantitative. Um, and this is like appropriation, man, which leads to a qualitative change. It's kind of quantitative into qualitative, actually. All of that can be synthesized because Marx also talks quite a bit about how and, you know, uh, Galliano quotes him kind of out of context a little bit as being like primitive accumulation with all of this wealth flowing in did hugely help like capitalism become a thing. And it definitely did. And Marx talks about in Capital about how a quantitative increase is completely necessary of people working in factories right next to each other and the number of laborers to get the measure of value. So for abstract like labor. Um, so, yeah, it all, I guess, needs to be synthesized. But, um, but for Marx central to the process of primitive accumulation is the change in social relations far more than the sure. sort of crude primitive accumulation. This isn't, sure, this but isn't it's to also, deny what you're saying. This is to... Like, yeah, 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 exactly. It needs those inputs. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's necessary and all these things, blah, 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 blah. But yeah, we got we to get to... I, we got to find something else to synthesize as well because yeah, I really like we need some historical <laughs> capitalism garbage. Some new history? Some more history? history something yeah. else entirely. Yeah, Maybe yeah. some science. Some science. Mm. Oh, well, yeah. Um, yeah, it's all very good. I don't think I have anything left to say on this part necessarily. There was one bit where he said that, um, like, coal only replaced charcoal in America as the primary energy source in, like, 1880. I read that and I just went, what? That's insane. They were still using, like, charcoal then? Yeah. That's nuts. Yeah, what are you going to do? All of the bits, I think, as well about, um... You touched on this earlier about, like, um, the American kind of, like, frontier family unit as being hugely important to this kind of, like, idea of appropriation. Because, obviously, they were appropriating what was in the soil. They are appropriating the land, all of this stuff. Um, but there's also this idea of, like, central to that unit that, like, it created this form of, like, patriarchal appropriation where suddenly, like, it was just, like, you know... The guy was able to just, like, not pay his wife and, like, kids to do all of this work on the farm, right, which is necessary. And that kind of gets into, like, where he's influenced in a lot of his thinking about, like, radical um, feminism, eco-feminism as well as being, like, unpaid house labor and stuff like that. Um, appropriation, so. Yeah, that didn't come up very much in these three chapters, did it? Mm -hmm. That stuff that was in the first few about um, an important free input to capitalism being the unpaid work of women say or people doing social work things that reproduce the worker without being directly included in the sort of like process of capitalization i suppose things that stand outside of it um yeah, I don't know. Mm. Yeah. yeah it is interesting i mean we all definitely like to think obviously because capitalism is this global system that like everything is capitalized but it's like very much in capitalism's interest for everything not to be capitalized mm. and i think that that's a really yeah important uh at least for me like um it's called shift, paradigm shift. 
because it's very much like, oh shit. And then you start to realize like all of the stuff that is unpaid and that isn't necessarily exploited. And it's all just like slowly <laughs> slipping out of the capitalist hands in a very morbid way. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to think because we do think of capitalism as being this process which is seeking more and more control over everything kind of thing. But um, it only needs control over what it needs control over. Yeah. And as I identified in this book, there are reasons why it would want to not have control kind of thing. Mm. Or it would like to think keep things external to its uh, circulating processes. Mm. So, and, yeah, yeah, and I suppose we also, we haven't mentioned that like one of the four chiefs, labor, uh, one of the reasons that like that very importantly can't continue forever is like we've kind of undersold like class struggle <laughs> because like there is this antagonism where you can't keep appropriating people forever because there is this like people have agency and they're not going to take it anymore. Right. I mean, like we're seeing that more and more now with people who are exploited. So we'll see how long the what is left of appropriated labor or at least cheap labor, yeah. I suppose I should say, can be kept up. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of those. um this is just an aside now, but mm. but going back to that reference of a billion Chinese workers coming into the workforce in the eighties and nineties kind of thing. One of the things because we we hear a lot of moment in in the UK and I would imagine in the US as well, like real wages have been falling for the past thirty years kind mm. of thing. And one of the things that has allowed that falling wages to happen, one of those things that has allowed um, wages to stay cheap, quote mm. unquote, is all of these kind of like cheap consumer durables that have been produced in China and sort of brought over here so that you can have a toaster for £10 or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So there is this sort of like, there is external, this this comes back to one of the things he reiterates quite a lot throughout this book is, it's not just one thing, it's not just one input that keeps everything cheap, you know. he's He pushes back a bit about against the idea that like, it was solely coal uh, in the 19th century which sort of like, uh, was central to the Industrial Revolution and that phase of capitalism that phase of boom and bust in capitalism kind of thing, but how everything is interlinked. And this is another example of like peasant workers being drawn into the capital, the process of capitalism is allowing for the maintenance of cheap labor in the Western world kind of thing. Mm. So yeah, yeah, it's all connected. It is folks. all connected. It's all dialectical. Um, I just remember the last thing I'd like to bring up. I know that he, um, in this, we get, uh, I'm always interested now whenever people bring up technology as kind of like a motivating force in societies and in history, because we, from very early on in doing the show, were like, technological determinism? Bad. But he brings up how important, like, the technologies that allowed for global relations to become capitalist, say, like, a globe-spanning system of trains, um, how important that was to capitalism and how important that was to basically like appropriation because a it allowed for like the global hegemony of these relations of capitalist relationships but it also allowed for the like global appropriation and easy appropriation of things like i don't know coal fields in siberia or something like that um and obviously very much like the trains in america and things like that um so it is interesting like he he touches on all of the bases and he definitely has the like things in history appropriation ecology the oikios or whatever that are his like driving factors obviously you know um relation like social relationships as well um but he also he also doesn't leave things out and like technology it's like this book is very much like it's determined kind of by everything and so when he had this section on like if you just took it out out of context would be like 
technological determinism, I was like, oh, this is this, yeah, this is interesting. This is really, really cool. Because you can't forget about, like, yeah, this is important, the cotton gin, things like that. Um, but, like, you know, what is it that allowed for these things to be made, et cetera, et cetera. It's all connected. It's a web of life. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's, a really, <laughs> it's an interesting point. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. But it's definitely not a technological determinism that mm. he's presenting kind of thing. It's almost the other way around. It's almost the myriad social relations of capitalism, which include the social relationship between capitalism and nature, I guess, mm. um, create circumstances of decline and crisis, which necessitate revolutionizing mm. both the class relationship, but also the uh, types of technology that, that are, there are in existence to mediate human relationships with nature. And so technological development is almost a result of various different pre-existing crises from the the pre-existing mode of capitalist accumulation, I guess. Um, so it's all an interconnected historical, yeah. natural historical. It's all very process. cyclical and cir maybe I should say circular because it's all, yeah, it's all, it, this is kind of one of the reasons that it's kind of hard to talk about. It's because it's like, there is no starting point. There's a, it really isn't an end point in talking about like technology is determined by this, which is determined by this, which is determined by this, which is determined by technology, which is determined by this. So it's really an interesting like, at least exercise in thinking, I guess, dialectically, but also just like, um, well, <laughs> yeah. So I, I dig it. We fucking, we got to get through like 140 more pages. We should just finish it. We'll see. We'll see if we can just blitz it. We'll see if we can just blitz it. Um, but yeah, I really dug this. Um, looking forward to getting to it. And hopefully we don't just read ecology from here on out, but I am up for just reading ecology <laughs> from here on out. We'll see. No, we'll think of something exciting and different to read. Yeah, History of the Windsors is what we'll read. Why not? Why yeah. not? Um, all right. Yeah, that's about it. Um, we will be back soon. This has been very exciting. I feel like even though we've been doing these on a uh, two-weekly basis, I feel like the more time is happening in between them. I don't know why. It feels like it's longer. More than two weeks. Yeah. Exactly. A little peek behind the veil. It has been three weeks since we recorded the last one. That's oh, well, that's why. <laughs> wow, you're right. It's absolutely right. This episode is going up in like 12 hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've got to start recording this so yeah. I can go and edit it. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you to the listener. Thank you to Dan. And uh, thank you to Jason W. Moore for pulling back again. So, uh, yeah. God bless. <laughs> See you. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>Music you heard this episode was music to kill bad people too by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion. Till next time.